Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And uh, I have tried to follow fashion blogs in my time. Uh, tried and failed. I know that sounds kind of silly to like say that you've tried to follow a blog, but it is exhausting for me to like be going to a blog every day, or in this case, in this day and age, Instagram account, and look at all of these beautiful clothes and just be like, I don't even know, how do these people even put an outfit together? Yeah, it makes me feel behind. Yeah. Scrolling through Instagram, I'm like, oh man, I thought, oh. Oh, and I look down right now. Can I tell you what I'm wearing? Should oh. we describe what we're wearing? Ooh, yeah. To let listeners know where we're coming from. I'm wearing a sw- striped sweatshirt. Uh-huh. A massive, like, lime green tank top underneath it. Cool. To cover up the fact that I'm wearing exercise pants under that. You could call it athleisure. Conger, yeah. Cutting edge athleisure. Yeah, I'm wearing sneakers. And yes, I did, um, accessorize with a bracelet and a <laughs> necklace. But seriously, this is called, I didn't want to put on, take off all of my pajamas. <laughs> so you're half, you're half pajamaed. Yeah, I basically put on a sweatshirt and came to work. I think that's totally fine. I used to literally go to work in my pajamas when I worked at the newspaper and I was hung over on Sundays because I worked from, uh, Friday to Tuesday or Friday to Yeah, that's right. Friday to Tuesday. And so I'd go in on Sundays just like unapologetically disgusting. But you're looking more put together than I am today. Oh, thank you. I am wearing a Canadian tuxedo. Uh, I'm wearing some dark denim pants and a, and a chambray shirt. Yes. Oh, yes. And a, and a chunky knit sweater over it because it, it's cold in Atlanta finally. It's chilly here. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I can't keep up with, with fashion blogs because it just, um, makes me feel like I need to immediately go shopping. So what I do is when I get the urge to go shopping, mm-hmm. which is pretty spotty for me, I'm one of those, like, I really do believe the science that it is tied to ovulation. So it's like once a month, <laughs> I'll be suddenly like, I need a new something or other. And then I'll go online <laughs> and you'll Google something or other. I'll Google something or yeah. other. And what the internet tells me is appropriate for mm-hmm. ladies to be wearing, then I might go get it. I'm so impressed. But so you, you do like fashion research almost? Yeah. Like, I'll usually have like an instinct of like what I want to be wearing. See, I just walk blind into the store, which is why I end up with things that don't go together. Yeah. Oh. I'm not, I'm not a browser. I can't browse. Well, I don't see. I'm I'm more of an efficient. I'm more efficient than just browsing. I don't want to go in and just shop, but I'll walk in and be like this, 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 and this. Try it on. Nothing fits. The one time in Madewell, I got stuck in a silk shirt because my boobs were too big for it. Uh, that was the longest I'd ever spent in a Madewell. I, I do shop there. It's I like it. It's just you got to watch out for those silk shirts that don't have zippers. You know, when you've got when you've got boobs on your chest. Never been a problem for this, A cup. <laughs> Just it's a thing. Well, but the thing about doing like fashion research, whether you are intending to go shopping or whether you are just passing the time on the Internet, is that these fashion bloggers can make everything look so perfect and effortless that it does tend to make me feel like there is no way I can achieve that. Like the way that this woman or whoever is like putting together these outfits and these accessories. How did she even think of that? My head is too big for that hat. I could never pull it off. My face is too round. What's happening? Uh, where am I? 
help me, I'm trapped in blog world. But I end up almost like resenting these strangers on the internet for how amazing and put together they look. I started following uh, Chiara Farini, who's the blonde salad. She has like a bajillion followers on social media. Uh, and I like three days later, I unfollowed her. Oh, it was too much. It was too much. And and I was just like, I don't need to see like strangers in designer dresses, like looking effortless with their glass of champagne. Because you know what? I am effortless with my glass of champagne on my couch on there a Sunday morning in my pajamas. Uh, Leandra Medine of Man Repeller mm-hmm. is a rare fashion blogger that I do follow mostly because I'm drawn to her business and branding savvy. Mm-hmm. But she's also one of those where her outfits would look clownish on me because she can. I mean, half of it is, you know, they're wearing designer clothes. We're wearing Madewell sale. So there's going to be a difference in how it's going to at best kind of look. Yeah. <laughs> um, Madewell sell at best. <laughs> but there have been so many times when she's like, now I've got my high waist cropped billowy trousers and my crop top switchbacks ready to go. What did you even just say? I don't know. I don't think a crop top switchback is actually a thing. It sounds like a dance. (laughs) (laughs) Or like a cheerleading move. It was like an old homeschool cheerleading term from back in my youth. (laughs) Well, I don't know where I got it, but that's just what I think of. But what what I'm trying to say is I relate in not understanding how uh, outfits are pulled off. And I think Man Repeller, obviously, is one of those top names in fashion blogging and fashion social media. She's definitely kind of at the top of the heap. But it is interesting to see sort of the evolution of fashion blogging, how it got started, what role the recession played in it, the fact that it's almost basically been distilled down, except for maybe those people who are at the top of the heap, it's been pretty much distilled down to just like Instagram accounts Mm -hmm. nowadays, especially with this flood of uh, fashion bloggers into the market. But we wanted to look at today the reality of what it means to be a fashion blogger, whether you are the man repeller at the top of the heap or whether you are, you know, the mom in Albuquerque who just really likes fashion and wants to blog about it. Or Target hauls. Yeah, Target. But it it has changed so much, even just as a complete fashion outsider that I am, from not so long ago when I still remember a friend of mine asking me, have you read... Style Rookie before. It's this amazing fashion blog that you have to read. Her writing is so good. And surprise, she's like like 13 years old. Oh, my God. And she's talking about, of course, um, Tavi Gevinson, mm-hmm. now of Rookie Magazine and just all around amazingness. And back then, fashion blogging was so much more, yes, curating outfits and photo shoots, but it was her writing, too, that... Um, really legitimize the whole thing. Whereas now it, it is so much just Insta followers, monetize, monetize, monetize. Do you know what I was wearing at 12 years old? Kristen? What? A, a crop top switchback? Uh, yeah, it was underneath my sleeveless button up denim shirt and uh, which was tucked into my pleated Bermuda shorts and belted. And I don't mean to suggest in any way that this was a positive look at all. Do you know what pleated shorts do to me? 
No, I don't. It's not pretty, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah, so I'm quite impressed by by Tavi. That was more during my soccer phase. <laughs> there was lots of umbras and t-shirts I thought were cool. And by cool, I mean duckhead t-shirts. No, umbros were my 12-year-old Caroline athleisure. I would wear umbros for no reason, really, other than to just be like, oh, I've got a breeze going on now. Whereas 12-year-olds today can go to thrift stores, go vintage shopping. They can curate all these outfits. They can create their own lifestyle brands and become fashion brands of their own. So it's no wonder that being a fashion blogger would attract so many people, whether it's a passion for fashion or whether it's just people who are like, I need to make money. And some of those people end up making bajillions of dollars. Yeah. Harper's Bazaar estimates that brands, not like the these cottage brands, but big name brands are spending more than a billion dollars a year on sponsored Instagram posts. Yeah. So if you are a top flight uh, fashion blogger or fashion Instagrammer, someone might come knocking and want to pay you a bunch of money. And of course, how much you make depends on factors, mainly including audience size. But uh, Harper's was writing about how if you have hundreds of thousands of followers, you can make anywhere from 500 to 5000 dollars per post. Whereas if you have in the millions your fee to some of these companies who want you to wear their stuff can range from 20 grand to 100 grand per shot. And I am dead. I have died. I'm dead now with shock. Well, the thing about it is, though, getting all that cash that is that is literally killing you is fewer and farther between these days, mm-hmm. because while This whole fashion blogging um, entrepreneurialism has grown uh, with people like Rachel Parcell of Pink Peonies and Amy Song of Song of Style, like making all this money and uh, branding all of this stuff and having these fabulous lives that we're all seeing and following and making us want to get into the game. Because the pool of bloggers is growing, brands are getting stingier with their money and their sponsorships as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously brands are getting hip to what is going on on the Internet, knowing that they can get away with either not paying anyone anything or paying people a lot less. Like, you should just be happy that we sent you a purse. So, like, take pictures of yourself wearing it. Um, There was a New York Times article in January of 2015, uh, and they were talking to PR folks who admitted that the, quote, digital girls, so in other words, fashion blogging women, thank you very much, uh, are sparking higher conversions. And that's marketing speak for uh, converting those web visits into direct sales than celebrity placement. So Jennifer Aniston, Hawking, like Avino or uh, what's the other one? Living Proof hair stuff. It's not going to pay off necessarily as much as if you're having these big faces in fashion blogging wearing your stuff because they are authentic, they're relatable, they're effortless, they're beautiful, they're just like you. Well, and you'll see, too, in their Instagram posts, they will, you know, you can shop the post and like Bloomingdale's and other kinds of stores like that have set up systems where, you know, you get a cut of whatever sales that you're, you make mm-hmm. driving your followers to that store. Yeah. And technically, we should mention that according to the Federal Trade Commission, these fashion Instagrammers are supposed to disclose the gifts and payments they receive from companies. Uh, but the enforcement's really uneven. So it's kind of like the Wild West for fashion bloggers in terms of the compensation you receive and whether you <laughs> are going to be reporting any on your taxes. 
But the thing that we don't see that we did talk about a lot in our hashtag blessed podcast a little while back is all of the invisible work that goes into even crafting just a single Instagram post, much less managing an entire lifestyle brand, mm-hmm. especially if you aren't someone like Leandra Medine, who now has a whole staff. If it's just you, your life is your lifestyle brand. Yeah. And so today, in just a little bit, we're going to be talking with Brooke Aaron Duffy, who's a professor at Temple University School of Media and Communication, and Emily Hun, who's a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School for Communication. Yay, communication students! Woo, represent! Um, because these ladies just published a study about the hidden lives of fashion bloggers. It's called Having It All on Social Media, Entrepreneurial Femininity and Self-Branding Among fashion bloggers. And the whole point of their research was talking to a bunch of these women uh, about what they do, how they make their blogs, how they go about living their lives. And they ended up finding a lot of drudgery behind that whole easy breezy chic veneer. Such as 80 to 100 hour work weeks. And Caroline, you and I, you and I put in a lot, of, a lot of time and stuff I've never told you every week. Not to humble brag. <laughs> But 80 to 100 hours a week, it is not. No. And I mean, you can argue um, that this is a passion job. These women love fashion. They love what they do. They're going to be taking pictures anyway, so they should be making a little money for it. But that's crazy town. 100 hours a week of anything is crazy, aside from sleep or maybe like milkshakes. That's like crazy to be just posting about fashion all the time and taking pictures of yourself all the time. 100 hours a week of drinking milkshakes? I, okay. You're so bloated. True, uh, real talk, I am lactose. Lactose does not agree with me, and I miss milkshakes so much. Oh. That's just me projecting. I'm sorry. Well, there's also not guaranteed financial stability with this. No surprise, because it's a different kind of freelance work. You're really going from maybe sponsorship to sponsorship or freelance post to post. So until you are at that higher level, I mean, you're not necessarily going to be making the kind of money to support the kind of lifestyle that you will need to be projecting. Although, yeah, I'm, yes, exactly. Speaking of projecting. So Emily, researcher Emily wrote an email that fashion bloggers look like they have it all. Fulfilling careers, financial success, flexible schedules and fun lives. I mean, that sounds great. Right? Yeah. Uh, but unlike the having it all icons of the analog era, uh, she cites people like Helen Gurley Brown or Ally McBeal. Uh, she says these creative makers are ostensibly women just like us. As such, their digital images make it seem as though having it all is accessible to all, just a whole lot of passion and a few social media accounts away. Which, yeah, that sounds like totally easy, right? So there was a lot of really great, fascinating information to talk about with Emily and Brooke when it comes to the hidden lives of fashion bloggers. So many different aspects of what shapes a career as a fashion blogger, it's definitely much more than a hobby for the women they spoke with. And one of the things that really shaped a lot of these women's experiences was the, oh, I don't know, entire recession. Because when the economy became so unstable, it shook up things at a lot of those legacy fashion magazines. But it also meant that the rest of the economy was unstable. So you have a lot of people going into starting their own personal fashion brands, uh, not only as a passion job, but also 
to make money. And so then you have the issue of once you get into this type of line of work, you have to make money somehow. So part of the work that goes into it is having to negotiate sponsored posts for however much money. Uh, there was one article that we were looking at that talked to a whole bunch of different fashion bloggers about how much they made, which a lot of fashion bloggers are a little reticent to talk about that. But Antoinette Coolis, a.k.a. Sydney fashion blogger, said, clients say, I'll pay you to wear that dress. I'll pay you to wear those shoes. So, yeah, you know, they sponsor me. I hate to say it. But if you think of me like a giant billboard, people are paying for that space. Not everybody is so open with that financial wheeling and dealing that goes into what looks like just an effortless, spontaneous image. And Carolyn, in case you were wondering, a sweatshirt company didn't pay me to wear the sweatshirt. You know, I mean, I know I look like a billboard in my in my sweats today. You look like a vision. It's it's just me. (laughs) I'm sponsoring myself today. And in addition to the business side of it, there's a whole community management side of it that we know personally uh, via working on the Internet as well, that you have your fans and advertisers to answer to. But you also have to deal with people who are not going to be so happy about seeing you in a pretty dress or what you're cooking for dinner or what you're doing with your kids. I mean, online abuse definitely happens for these women as well. Um, and it can be exhausting, especially when you are trying to merge not just branding yourself, but also branding your entire family. And that's something that Heather Armstrong, who is much more of a quote unquote mommy blogger than fashion blogger, um, uh, has experienced to the point that she, aka Deuce, recently announced that she's essentially retiring from the whole mommy blogger thing um, because her life had just become so sponsored and it was interfering with her kids' lives. Yeah, she said that she found that brands that wanted to be featured were basically trying to exert more and more control over not only what was featured, but the tone, uh, the image itself. And she's like, listen, at some point, I'm just a copywriter for you. Like, and I'm not earning benefits. I'm not earning, like, paid time off or leave or anything that an employee might. I'm just some lady on the internet and you're trying to exploit my children for your benefit. Um, and one really, uh, important point of the conversation with Brooke and Emily centered around this idea of emotional labor and women's work. They argue that fashion blogging is emotional labor. And what emotional labor refers to is essentially managing your public facing persona and bodily display in order to, I don't know, like kind of sell a good. You're sort of selling your the experience of being around you. Customer service, for instance, is a form of emotional labor. Well, it's going above and beyond. So customer service might be answering the phone. Uh, to make sure your customer has what she needs. But then the emotional labor part of it comes in when it's like, you got to make sure to smile. You got to make sure to look pretty. You got to make sure to be pleasant. Stuff that's not really easily quantifiable, but that could make or break how successful you are at your job. And so obviously this ties into a lot of what we're talking about today in terms of emotional labor tending to be gendered. It tends to be a term that is used to describe a lot of the lower wage work done by women in the service sector. And so in this regard, fashion blogging is absolutely about going above and beyond just taking a picture, writing a blog post, writing an Instagram caption. It's absolutely 
taking time out of your life, portraying yourself as so deliriously happy with this glass of wine you're sipping in your, you know, your new boots or whatever. Uh, there is a degree of just having it bleed into the rest of your life. And we actually have two special guests on the podcast to talk more about that concept today. And we're going to hear from them right after a quick break. Well, why don't we get to our conversation with Brooke and Emily so they can tell us a little bit more about the hidden lives of fashion bloggers. Hi, I'm Brooke Aaron Duffy. I am an assistant professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. I have a PhD in communication from the University of Pennsylvania, where we're at right now. Um, and over the past few years, I've been studying gender, social media, and creative production. And that's what led me into the topic of fashion bloggers and the labor that gets performed there. Um, I am Emily Hunt. I'm a PhD student at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, also in Philadelphia. Um, and I do research on social media, consumer culture, um, and creative work. And I'm particularly interested in the fashion industry and, and fashion media. So I am interested in touching a little bit on how exactly you guys did get interested in fashion. What specifically led you to that? Um, sure. Well, for me, uh, fashion has always been like a, an important part of my life. I actually, I grew up, um, making and designing clothes for myself. Um, and I, but I always thought of myself as a writer and I wanted to work at magazines. Um, and so after I graduated from college, I worked, um, in magazines for a few years, some fashion magazines and, um, some health, uh, related publications. And I, I was working at, a really interesting time for the industry, probably the worst time for, for the industry and its history. It was during the recession, sort of like the instability of these legacy publications and then, um, the fashion bloggers that were really starting, um, to explode at, at the time and, um, seeing these young women basically making careers for themselves. Um, and blogging really just became like the buzzword, um, at that time. And I kind of thought to myself, like, I, I don't think this is, um, necessarily for me to do personally, but I'm, but what's going on is really, um, uh, interesting and, um, wild. And so I decided to, um, go back to school and kind of study these institutions, um, and the culture, um, in a, on a broader scale. So while Emily was studying it from the inside, I was kind of looking at it from a holistic perspective on the outside. I was doing my dissertation work around the same time, and I was really interested in how the women's magazine industry was shifting in this moment where we're moving to digital and increasingly social media platforms. And so I was doing interviews with magazine producers, executives, and so forth, and the topic of fashion blogging kept coming up and you know at the time we were kind of seeing the the end of the debate fashion bloggers versus editors and so forth but but it was really reconfiguring the industry industry the ways in which magazine professionals were thinking about their role in the larger fa fashion sector and how this is changing and adapting in response to these new entrants and so that for me was you know kind of sparked an interest in understanding what these new social media platforms meant both for people inside the industry as well as those hoping to make a living through it. 
Now, before we get into uh, the demographics of your study, the, the broader group of people that you looked at for your research, I'm curious if there were any fashion bloggers in particular kind of during this time that sort of casually piqued both of your interests that you were especially drawn to or compelled by? Hmm, that's a good question. I think um, The Man Repeller for me was um, a blog that I started reading really early on, um, right, right soon after she launched, because she was a blogger who was able to get publicity extremely quickly. And I kind of started reading that blog and I, and I, uh, have really followed it pretty closely over the last few years just because I think, um, that blog is an excellent case study, um, for the changes that, um, fashion blogging, more broadly speaking, has experienced over the last few years. And, um, that's probably the most interesting blog to me and has been for a while. And it's also interesting to think about kind of waves. You know, we talk about fashion blogging is this singular entity, but it's, it's really interesting to think about in terms of the generations we've gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first generation, like circa 2006 or so, we saw kind of this rise of grassroots indie voices. We, we saw the Brian Boys and, and the Amy songs and, and Tavi, and everyone was talking about this little, you know, 12-year-old girl who's sitting next to Anna Wintour and... Um, I think since then it's it's just exploded so much that we've seen the rise of various niches in fashion blogs, but also we see a lot more similarity just because of the oversaturation in the marketplace. So for the purposes then of your study, can you just tell our audience a little bit about who you looked at? Who who were your study participants? Sure. So we um, decided to look at the fashion blogs who are um, – top ranked um, by the industry. And that basically means they, they tend to be ranked by their um, engagement, by, by the level of engagement that their audience has. So that basically means that um, the audience is clicking on what they post. Um, and there's this sort of like measurable, um, a way to measure their success, basically. And so that we pulled uh, the top 38 fashion blogs, and it was going to be 40, but it ended up being 38 because uh, we wanted to keep it to um, the blogs that remained independent, and two of the blogs that were in that top ranking had since been purchased by, um, like, corporate blog networks, Um, and so we removed them from our sample, and so that's how we ended up with um, these top 38 blogs. And that was the, you know, we, we conducted a visual analysis of that. So we were going on Instagram, we were going on the blogs themselves to get a sense of how they present themselves on these different media. Um, and what was, I think, important for us was to understand both what bloggers were doing in terms of what they were posting, but also what they were saying, get a sense of what was going on behind the scenes. Um, so this study itself was based on, I think, eight interviews. But over the past few years, Emily and I have together done more than 50 interviews with bloggers at various stages of their careers and and so forth. Well, so what was the overall driving purpose behind this study? What were you guys really hoping to learn and convey to readers? Well, I think 
what first piqued our interest um, was we were interested in what kind of messages these bloggers were constructing via their social media presences and um, on the blogs themselves, messages about what it means to do the kind of work that they do. Um, about what it means to be, and, and related to that is what it means to be like an entrepreneur, a female creative, um, all these kinds of messages. And so we had some, um, like hunches about what we might find. Um, and so then we decided to just do, um, you know, a deep systematic analysis of the narratives that they were, um, that they were constructing. So one of the things that really jumped out to me in your study was talking about how this relates to what you describe as the long history of gendered emotional labor. And I had just never thought about fashion blogging and even beauty vlogging and DIY and crafting in that way before. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that means and how it relates to fashion blogging. Sure. I mean, one of the things that was so interesting and and compelling about this project was the disparity between this kind of image of artful perfection that we see on the Instagram images, and I think so many of us compare us to, the disparity between that and the the work, the labor that goes into this. So there's been a lot of discussions lately about the labor that people do online and the labor that goes into self-presentation, but I think it's important to contextualize this. And in the early 80s, Arlie Hochschild, who's a sociologist, did some work. She was studying flight attendants and other service workers and drew attention to the concealed labor they perform. You know, the the way we present ourselves and the work that gets involved in the, the gendered notions of this. And, you know, it was really interesting to see similar things among our serv- among the people we were talking to during interviews that... There's so much that gets obscured in these images, the work of staging the photos, of getting ready, and and I think most importantly, the act of promoting oneself, reaching out to one's networks, tweeting, Facebook, you know, actually responding to comments and so forth. And I, I don't think there's been given enough attention to the extent to which these various codes, you know, drive the, the production and drive the labor of the Instagram posting and blogging in general. Yeah, and I think another thing about emotional labor as, um, Arlie Hochschild defined it, and she's a, she's an amazing sociologist, and people might know her, um, more, like, from her work about the second shift. She's also the sociologist who gave us that idea that, um, women go to work and then there's a second shift at home doing that kind of care work. But I think an important part about the emotional labor, um, that she theorizes is the also the imperative to create a certain emotional reaction in the people that you are facing. So, for example, a server at a restaurant has to manage um, his or her own emotions, but they also have to try to um, create an emotional feeling in the people that they're facing, like, you know, feeling comfortable, having fun, whatever that might be. And we saw a lot of similarities with um, what the bloggers were doing, um, having to sort of interact with their audiences and um, cultivate um, an emotional feeling of fun or inclusiveness or community or stylishness or whatever that may be um, with their with their audiences. 
Now, one of the big elements of your study and things that we've already been talking about is this whole idea of the work being obscured. And I mean, that's such a big point because I know when I look at some fashion blogs or lifestyle blogs, you're just looking at these pictures like, oh, my God, these people are so beautiful. Their homes and their clothes are all so gorgeous. You're not really thinking about well, wait, how many times did they have to take that picture? What went into it? Did they even get to enjoy their vacation with their families? <laughs> and so I would really love for you to talk a little bit about how much of that work actually does go into this whole looking natural thing and like these women and these bloggers have it all. Like how much is actually going on behind the scenes and what toll is it taking? So that's again where, you know, we, we found it so important to interview these women because as you're saying, you know, we, we look at these images on Instagram and it, it, you know, it's like the whole fear of missing out culture. It just looks like such a glitz and glamorous life and, you know, hobnobbing with celebrities and traveling all around the world. And when we spoke with a lot of these women, I mean, they were grateful for their opportunities. But they also wanted to call attention to the fact that these are their full-time jobs. Their full-time jobs is presenting a certain image. And so much of it is bound up with their, their personal brand. And so it was, it was really compelling to hear how much the idea of maintaining the brand, crafting and maintaining the brand in all capacities guided so much of their lives. And, you know, we, we have this sense of, their professional and personal lives blending together, I think, in in, in such a interesting and an all inclusive way that you know, as you mentioned, we one woman is saying you know she's on her honeymoon and she feels like she has to take images to put these up so they can be on Instagram. And another woman was saying you know, like the rest of us, if I have my regular cereal breakfast, this isn't going to go anywhere. But if I have my eggs Benedict and my mimosa, then I'm going to post this. And so, so much about thinking how we want to craft this persona in order to post it online rather than, you know, what we're actually enjoying in this particular moment. Yeah. And as far as how much work it takes, I, it's pretty much all encompassing is, is the answer that we got pretty much across the board. Um, that there is, there is no real break and, um, and, you know, even when you're on vacation or you're getting ready for bed or, you know, whatever it may be, these times that for many other people would be considered a private time, um, you're never really off. I think constantly being on is the is the main imperative of the job. Mm-hmm. And this idea of always being on means that aspects of not just your personal life, but those around you need to have a continual presence on your various social media channels. And so that means, you know, showing, showing our families and, and, you know, showing our pets and our homes and all these different spaces. And so it's really this like kind of compulsion to maintain visibility in all senses of the word. Well, you guys talk about the idea also of having it all and that maybe they're presenting sort of a new idea of the woman who has it all. Did you get a sense from these women that they were trying to convey that, that like, oh, look, I can have it all? Or was that just sort of a side effect of like trying to capture every moment of their lives? I think there's a sense of having it all, but in in kind of a different way than we're used to. We were thinking of the 80s and 90s, this more post-feminist mode of having it all, where it was really conflating the the family and the workspace. And so we're looking at kind of a different set. We weren't looking at mommy bloggers, but the having it all was, was having this career where 
we're doing what we love and it's okay that our personal and professional lives bleed together. Um, but what makes it kind of interesting was this image of perfection also had these moments of seeming candor. So presenting oneself as real or authentic or relatable was something that, that kept coming up. But that too is, is constructed in a way that has an image. It's always constructed against something. So it's, you know, having a sense of presenting oneself as authentic in a way that becomes bound up in the image itself. Do you think that audiences are becoming wise to that level of artifice? I mean, as I'm listening to you talking, it's making me think of the, uh, the Instagram account Socality Barbie that yeah. recently <laughs> yes. went viral. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think a lot of us know that there is a level of artifice presented in a lot of these fashion blogs and Instagrams that we're seeing, but, but do we really embrace that? I don't know. I'm wondering, like, what effect is this having on us? Just the average, average Kristen's and Caroline's. <laughs> um, I guess that's kind of a hard question to answer because we didn't, um, study the audience in in this research, but that's definitely something that would be a great project going forward. I think that, I don't know, my my sense is that, like you said, uh, people are more aware than they uh, maybe once were, that there is a lot of work and artifice and posing and things like that that go on behind the scenes. And also, I get the sense that people are more aware of the, of the money required to to be successful at, in, in fashion blogging. But that being said, because of this rhetoric um, that persists, that bloggers are just like us, they're regular women, um, that kind of thing. I don't know. I think, it, I think that still um, kind of blurs blurs the boundaries a little bit and it, it, it doesn't make it clear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as Emily said, you know, the, this whole notion of presenting themselves as real or relatable, I mean, that's, that's part of the image too. And so one of the things was kind of interesting was how these bloggers sought to kind of conceal markers of, of class or privilege. And so one of, I don't know if this was in the study or just our separate project, um, but one of the women we interviewed said, you know, I, I have a lot of more expensive things. You know, I have my Tory Burch brand, uh, but I like to combine this with something from Old Navy because my audience will find this real or relatable. And so there was really this sense of, again, staying within one's crafted persona, which meant including these moments of, of candor and realness, but also being very, very careful to make sure the audience doesn't call one out. So, you know, the, the sense of thinking about your audience much the same way that, you know, media professionals have always thought about their audience. We see this same kind of attention to the readers, to the viewers, and of course to metrics that we've seen from mainstream media for, for decades. Were, were the people you talked to very tired? Because I'm listening to you talk about, you know, having to make sure they pair the designer bag with the old Navy shirt, maybe, um, and, and keeping an eye on metrics. But when you're trying to not only present yourself as creative and spontaneous, but also genuinely be creative and spontaneous, but also just constantly be worried about numbers and things like that, were these people just very, very tired? What kind of sense did you get from the women you talked to of sort of the cost-benefit analysis of this kind of work? 
Hmm. Well, I think there's a range, and we can probably both speak to the different kinds of women that we interviewed. Um, I, I've pretty much exclusively so far interviewed um, women who were doing this professionally. So they, this was their blogging was their source of income. They didn't have other jobs. Um, they were already kind of established in this in this field, and for them, I think they. I don't know if tired is the word. I think, I think they work constantly, but they, at the same time, they felt, um, sort of exhilarated by the the many opportunities that they'd been able to have. And they constantly said that they were so, they felt very grateful and lucky, um, that they were able to do this kind of work, which, that can be indicative of a whole other kind of um, emotional uh, labor, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the constant work is just a fact of, of life for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as Emily said, you know, I've studied professional bloggers, but I've also been working on a project where I'm studying blogging aspirants, creative aspirants, and those who are hoping to turn this into a profession. And, I, I got the sense that, you know, the professionals, like Emily said, did have a lot of gratitude, but I mean, it was incredible the nature and extent of work. I mean, this, this is kind of all encompassing the, these various aspects of one's lives. And I think we as readers of these blogs have a sense that, you know, this myth of overnight success and the ones who had gone pro that I spoke with had been working full-time and doing this part-time for four and five years until they had enough income that they were actually able to do this as a living. And so for me, it really helped to draw attention to the time, the commitment, the labor that goes into this before, you know, someone can quote unquote, do what they love and get paid. Now, this wasn't something directly addressed in the study, but as I was reading it and listening to you all talk right now, um, I'm really curious to get your sense of whether there is some kind of male digital creative analog to this whole fashion blogging space, because when I hear about this unpaid labor that's going on, the blending of professional and personal, the gratitude, the sense of feeling so lucky to have the job that you do, that we, though we do read about very often when we think about, uh, you know, women and work. And I'm just wondering if, there's a space where guys are doing a lot of this too in the digital entrepreneurial space. So, um, you know, I think one of the obvious comparisons that I've heard is, is sports blogs and, uh, my colleagues TC Corrigan and Kathleen Kuhn have done some really interesting work on the, the hope labor of sports blogs and drawing attention to the, the unpaid labor that these individuals do. And I think there are definitely some overlaps, but what I, I think it's so interesting about the fashion blogger set is the feminized nature. The fact that this does draw on kind of this gendered history of emotional labor. And, you know, you think about what fashion and beauty bloggers are doing. It's very much about the body. It's about the physique. It's, it's about these very gendered components about, you know, how, how to be a female. And so in one sense, um, that's kind of what compelled us to do this. Cause when we think of, when we think of entrepreneurialism, or I mean, I guess discourses about entrepreneurialism really much focus on this kind of masculine set. I mean, it's, it's a very, very difficult culture for women to break into because of kind of the institutional sexism that's pretty rampant in the tech scene. Um, so we have this masculine notion of entrepreneurialism, and then we have these women who are 
succeeding in careers that capitalize on these notions of femininity, whether it's beauty, whether it's motherhood, whether it's domesticity. And so what's so interesting about the women that we were focusing on is they kind of combine these these two realms in some really interesting ways. But I think in a lot of ways it is it remains still very gendered. And I think what we see with fashion bloggers may kind of presage larger trends in this whole social media environment. So I think there's definitely comparisons between something masculine like sports blogging, but I don't think you're going to see the same enactments of emotional labor and so forth. Well, you guys mentioned diversity. What role does fashion blogger diversity or lack thereof, I guess, play in those broader conversations and trends around fashion and beauty, would you say? Well, it's interesting because fashion blogging um, it has always sort of been um, held up as like this example of democratic participation in the fashion industry um, and and, you know, anyone, it's open to all, that anyone with an internet connection can participate, that kind of thing. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that is totally false because there are, in, in some ways, fashion blogging has opened up the fashion industry. Um, but it's no secret that the fashion industry, um, has, uh, major issues with, um, with diversity and, um, you know, especially in runway shows and magazine covers and these major advertising campaigns and blogging. When we, you know, when we looked at the, the top most influential bloggers, they really weren't any different. And that was something that, um, I think surprises us a little bit. Um, that, you know, out of our 38 women in our sample, I think only three of them were non white. And there were also a lot of markers of uh, cultural and economic, you know, pre-existing cultural and especially economic capital that that these women had prior to blogging. So the people who are at the top um, aren't as diverse as um, as you might think, judging from the rhetoric that surrounds fashion blogging. Well, speaking of, you know, the top versus the bottom, what is what does that income look like? So you've got your top fashion bloggers and people on Instagram. How much can they typically expect to bring in in over the course of a year versus somebody who's maybe more of a grassroots level blogger? Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember, I think it was about a year ago, a woman from Italy. Her name is Kira Farini, and she is the blonde salad Um And it came out, I think Harvard Business School did a case study with her and found that she's making a staggering $8 million this year. And within a day, I had a bunch of people sending me emails and and sharing the story because, you know, look at this, this fashion blogger kind of rose to the top and is making $8 million. But, you know, I think it's so important to stress that that is, that's an exception. It's such an exception because, I mean, this is a woman, she's, she's strikingly beautiful. She has background in fashion. She went to an Italian fashion school. She's been doing it for years. And so, you know, you see someone like that versus the annual salaries of the women we, were, we spoke with. And, you know, it's hard to get a sense of how much people are making. It was it was not something that, that people want to share. But like I said, a lot of people said they had been doing this for four or five years before they were actually able to make the jump to full time. And so I think in a lot of cases, um, you know, one woman said, I'm making next to nothing from her affiliate links and so forth. So it's it's such a huge disparity. 
Um, side note, I, I wish you two could have seen the look on Caroline's face when you said $8 million. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I get that a lot. I mentioned that in class yesterday. It had the same response. Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting because... Um, I, I've interviewed, like Brooke said, bloggers are really reluctant to give, you know, exact numbers. So it's hard for us to get, um, a, an exact sense. But, um, from the talking around the issue that we've done, um, there are people, there are bloggers out there who maybe you wouldn't even expect would be making, um, huge sums of money. And they're actually bringing in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. Um, so, it's really a range and it's really wholly dependent on the audience that you're able to cultivate for yourself. Are you able to get your numbers up, um, both in numbers of followers and in those engagement metrics, which are pretty much the lifeblood of the industry. It's pretty much, that's how you get your branding deals. And, um, you know, that's how you make money from affiliate links and all of that, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so we're thinking how much does the blogger make? And I give it this, this, story of someone making 8 million. But but what's also really important to point out is blogging is only a portion and sometimes a small portion of their actual income. Um, mm-hmm. And one young woman I interviewed, her name was Jessie, and she was telling me that, you know, blogger as a title is a bit of a misnomer. She said, I'm more like a, a full-time freelancer because she does speaking events. She goes on TV for various promotions. She's doing different initiatives. She still does freelancing for mainstream publications that she had a connection with um, in her er- earlier career. So even when we say, okay, well, these people are making, you know, whatever salary it is from their blogging career, I mean, that's that's a small portion of this really kind of complicated career field where they are Holding several jobs, I mean, you know, it's kind of indicative of, I guess, what was called a few years ago, the slash economy, where everyone has, you know, two or more positions where they're kind of doing fun and... Everyone has a side hustle. Yeah, Yeah. side hustle, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, yeah, the title of entrepreneur is really something that a lot of the bloggers that we interviewed hold on to. Um, They don't necessarily, they don't necessarily think of themselves um, not everybody, but many of them don't necessarily think of themselves as bloggers. They think of themselves as entrepreneurs. They have, they have a blog and then they also do a bunch of other things related to that blog. So how is that particular type of entrepreneurship shaped by what you referred to as sort of oversaturation earlier in the episode, um, in terms of more and more people getting into the game? So I think we're at a point where it's really, really hard to break into this. I mean, it, it, it's it's been difficult for some time, and I think because of the shift from kind of the first wave to the second wave or the third wave or wherever we want to say we're we're at in the in the blogosphere, there are so many people who are kind of following the, this pipe dream of making a living doing what I love, and and what it means is not just is it difficult to break in, but it's even harder for people who've been doing this for years and years to generate the same kind of income they once did. Um, one young woman I spoke with said that she had been doing this for, I think, about six or seven years. And she said December was a really hard month for her. And, you know, I, I asked what was going on. And she said, you know, I think a lot of it is because there are so many bloggers out there who are willing to work for free. And she said, you know, I think I, I get a sense that they already have existing income so they can purchase their own clothes rather than have them gifted to them and so forth. And and so we see that this oversaturated market is not just making it difficult 
for new entrants, but it's, it's really crowding out of a lot of people, especially when we have those that can actually afford to work for free. I mean, this isn't your everyday person who can, who can sustain this lifestyle without some kind of existing form of capital or something to some, someone to bankroll them. So knowing what you know now, what would you say would be the best case version of fashion blogging? An empire with a staff just doing it on the side, it being a legitimate passion project that you do when you have time? I think for me, I mean, this is something that I talk about with some of my undergraduates as well. I think it's it's both important but difficult to make sure they are fairly compensated. I mean, that's one of the things that I find so problematic is because the market is so oversaturated, brands essentially expect people to work for free. And I've had so many women say, you know, brands will send me things for for free and say, okay, well, you know, just do us a solid and, and do free promotion. But to draw attention to the fact that what they're doing does involve an incredible amount of work and it should be compensated like like any other form of work. And so I think realizing that and finding places to um, join networks and, and affiliate themselves with more institutional forms of support to ensure there is a way to get fairly compensated and not just be doing the same you know, buying into this work for exposure narrative that that's, seems to sustain so much of the contemporary work economy. Yeah, I would say that blogging um, seems to be, it's kind of starting to be thought of as, you know, the new way into the industry where, you know, the fashion industry and um, the magazine industry and things like that, they've kind of they've trafficked in unpaid internships for a very long time and um and unpaid internships have um gotten a lot more attention over the last few years about how they can be unfair they can be exploitive all these things um and blogging has the potential to also go down that route and so i think yeah like brooke said the important thing is to ensure that you're being fairly compensated for the work that you do and that's tough. That's hard for, you know, people, especially young women who are maybe late teens, early 20s, mid 20s. They're trying to get, um, you know, build their careers. It can be hard to kind of stand up and say, no, I deserve to be paid. But that would that would be the ideal. Well, what other types of advice do you have for for young women or girls or or even more established women who are interested in getting into this line of work now that we're past the recession and we're into a point where it's there's questions about oversaturation. Do you have any other advice for people like this? I think just important to kind of dispel the myth that this is this very easy career and also to dispel the myth that this is this job that be, that can, you know, it's kind of an overnight success. I think that's one of the things that's, that's, that I've discovered by speaking with these women is it's an incredible amount of work as we've been discussing, you know, for the past half hour or so. Um, but it's not just the work we see on the screen. It's the work we see behind the screens and kind of how that takes a toll in terms of this, this blurring of personal and professional lives, which I think can be difficult for, for women in general. And so I think to kind of be aware of what this career field involves, because I mean, that's, that's something that Emily and I have talked about more broadly is, you know, the creative industries, whether it's fashion, whether it's art, whether it's magazine journalism, and of course, fashion blogging are kind of idealized as these wonderful careers because of the flexibility and freedom and so forth. But there's a lot of downsides to this careers, um, you know, beyond just the labor involved, but 
independent work essentially means you don't have the, the institutional structure. So you, you don't have the benefits. You don't have the paid training. And so it's a huge trade off, a huge trade off to, to pursue these kind of individualized things because the, you know, so-called freedom you're getting is, is really giving up any sense of long-term stability. Yeah. And I don't know, it's the, the fact that you said like, you know, we're past the recession, that kind of like rang a, struck a chord with me, I guess, because while we aren't in the depths of it, um, anymore, of course, the after effects are still, still very much exist. And, um, I think that is important for, um, young people who are looking to enter the industry to know, which is, um, that, those, um, you know, institutionalized, um, support systems that Brooke mentioned are, um, disappearing, have disappeared to a large extent. Um, and, um, yeah, the, having that sort of entrepreneurial, um, mentality is, is a requirement, I think. Um, yeah, so just, just knowing that is important. Thank you so much to Brooke, Aaron Duffy, and Emily Hunt for speaking with us today about this kind of unexpectedly deep and super academic topic that is fashion blogging. I had no idea until really diving into their study and diving into this conversation with them, all of the different aspects about this very specific type of online labor, basically. And it'll be interesting to see how the whole thing evolves in mm-hmm. real time as we're interacting with our Instagram feeds that we may or may not hate follow. <laughs> um, because you do have outlets like Refinery29 that are already reporting on the death of the golden age of fashion blogging. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how as those brands continue to be more selective about how much they're going to give influencers and the kind of relationships they're willing to forge because you have so many up and comers who might be willing to do more for less. Like what's going to happen to these man repeller esque empires, which I'm sure Leandra is going to be fine. Same with blonde salad, etc. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see too, how many of maybe the middle tier or lower tier fashion blogs just essentially become advertisements, purely advertisements. I mean, yes, obviously the top tier people are wearing designer goods, wearing labels that you know and that you would go out and buy if you had, you know, a million dollars for a purse and a pair of shoes. But they aren't the ones who are doing things like featuring Kotex products or whatever other name brand uh, drugstore items in their posts. So I do wonder if those sort of uh, bottom of the heap fashion bloggers are just going to become nothing but the new advertising. Well, now we'd really love to hear from you listeners about all your thoughts on the whole fashion blogging world. Perhaps you are a fashion or lifestyle blogger or photographer or simply enjoy following all of these aspirational Instagrams. Let us know all of your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you and we come right back from a quick break. 
With the holidays almost here, I don't even have time to go to the post office, especially dealing with all the traffic headaches, the parking. I might run over someone if I fly into a rage. And I just feel like I can prevent all that by using Stamps.com. Because using Stamps.com, you get to avoid all of that road-ragey post office hassle during the busy holiday season. And everything that you would do at the post office, minus all that frustration, you can do right from your desk by buying and printing official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. It's so easy and convenient, which are two big things that you'll need to survive the holiday season. So right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF to access a special offer. It's a four-week trial with a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter STUFF. And now, back to the show. Well, I have a letter here from Courtney. She says, I'm a relatively recent college grad from a video production program. I specialized in post-production, specifically editing and VFX. Your last episode had me getting all sorts of emotional on my drive home from work. I realized VFX might seem like an odd thing to get emotional over, but it was so reassuring to hear that all the things I felt while studying in my program weren't ridiculous, considering I only had one other girl in most of my classes with me, and we didn't really talk much. In my program as a whole, there were maybe four women, and in most of my 3D animation, compositing, etc. classes, there was really only the previously mentioned one other girl. I feel like I was lucky because one of my primary male professors was incredibly encouraging to us ladies and very much wanted me to move on into the industry, but I knew it wasn't going to happen around the start of my third year. Most of the professors made it very clear that unless we, as professionals in the film industry, were willing to dedicate insane amounts of time to our careers, we would absolutely not make it. And he wasn't being dramatic, it's true. I felt like the least I could do by the time I was having doubts was to complete my program, and I graduated summa cum laude in my class. I then proceeded to drop my dreams of getting into film and VFX professionally and get a steady job in a completely unrelated field that paid my bills and crazy amounts of student debt. I knew that one day I wanted to start a family and that it just wasn't going to happen considering mine and my fiancé's financial status. It's a huge bummer because, honestly, most of the guys I went to school with were pretty cool, but there was just this constant feeling of not belonging. Like I'd barged into a frat party and the guys there were totally digging the female company, but not in a professional way. That feeling for four-plus years, plus the doubts that I could juggle a family life and insane amounts of time at work, just made me drop it after graduating. I've always felt badly about this, like I just gave up, because no doubt I could have made a career out of it. I guess mental health and a want for a family trumps those dreams, which is a really crummy situation for a lady to be put in. That's definitely the case for women in many fields of work. Anyway, thank you for shining some light on an issue a lot of people don't really think much of. And also for tooting the SFX VFX horn. So many people don't realize the crazy amounts of work and skill that go into it and how widely used it is in most visual media. You guys rock and your podcast gives me life on my super dull, super long commute to and from work. Well, thank you, Courtney. Well, I've got a letter here from Trisha, and she writes, I listened to your episode on the visual effects gender gap and was so pleased you covered it. I'm in a different field. However, I could relate strongly with many of the points made. I work as a designer in the advertising industry, and I'm going to school for my MFA in game development. Both are fields that are mainly male-centric. 
In fact, in regard to my video game classes, it's not unusual if I'm one of the few or only girl there sometimes. Gaps between straight males and everyone else seems to be predominant in every creative field. Men are creative because they possess some sort of otherworldly inspiration and intelligence. Meanwhile, women are creative because they're emotional and touchy-feely? The gap of how society views creativity among genders probably goes back to the age of fine art, where male artists take the center stage because it was viewed as a trade craft, and women, for the most part, couldn't work in those times. I think it's always important to talk about inequality struggles among all creative fields because we play a much more direct role in the entertainment industry and have a responsibility at changing the messages we put out into the masses. Anyway, I enjoy listening to the both of you and look forward to the next one. So thanks, Trisha, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our videos, blogs, and podcasts, including this one, with links to learn more about Brooke and Emily's research, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.